You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 275. Film is a collaborative medium. Bend over. Ted Griffin. Broadcasting from a dark, windowless room in Hollywood, when we really should be working on that next draft. It's the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, showing you the craft and business of screenwriting while teaching you how to make your screenplay bulletproof. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Now, today's show is sponsored by Bulletproof Script Coverage. Now, unlike other script coverage services, Bulletproof Script Coverage actually focuses on the kind of project you are and the goals of the project you are. So we actually break it down by three categories, micro-budget, indie film market, and studio film. There's no reason to get coverage from a reader that's used to reading tentpole movies when your movie's going to be done for $100,000. And we wanted to focus on that at Bulletproof Script Coverage. Our readers have worked with Marvel Studios, CAA, WME, NBC, HBO, Disney, Scott Free, Warner Brothers, The Blacklist, and many, many more. So if you need your screenplay or TV script covered by professional readers, head on over to CoverMyScreenplay.com. Have you ever wanted to learn from a Hollywood blockbuster screenwriter or even an Oscar winner? Well, I wanted to put together a free three-day screenwriting video series taught by legendary screenwriters David Goyer, from who wrote The Dark Knight, Nia Valdouras, who wrote The Big Fat Greek Wedding, Oscar-winning Callie Corey, who wrote Thelma and Louise, and Oscar winner Paul Haggis, who wrote Casino Royale. If you want access to this free class, head over to bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash free. Well, guys, we have finally hit episode number 275. And I wanted to have a special guest on when we hit that landmark. And today's guest is did not hold back at all. We have on the show Ted Griffin, who is a blockbuster screenwriter who has worked with Ridley Scott, Steven Soderbergh, Martin Scorsese, and many more. He is the screenwriting genius behind Ocean's Eleven, Matchstick Men, Rumor Has It, and dozens of other scripts that he has doctored over the course of his career. He has done TV shows, pilots, and he has seen it all. And, of course, he is one of the screenwriters in the Dialogue series, the TV series that talks to the biggest screenwriters in the world on IFH TV. I'll leave a link for that at the end of the show. But this episode was one of the rawest and most open conversations about the film industry, what people go through once they get inside of the machine. And Ted did not hold back. I love him for that. And I cannot wait for you guys to hear this. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Ted Griffin. I'd like to welcome to show. Oh, fuck you. No. <laughs> Don't. St- All right. Start over. No, sir. We were gonna keep. We're keep rolling. We're gonna keep rolling. I'll behave. <laughs> I, I I'd expect nothing less from you, sir, Mr. Ted Griffin. How are you, my friend? I'm terrific. Very very nice. Happy to be here. Happy to be alive. <laughs> Thank you, man. He says in New York stories, any any day above ground is a good day. Amen to that, brother. Amen. That to may that. have been no. my Tom Waits impression. I don't know. 
But I, I appreciate you coming on the show, man. I've been a fan of yours for a while. And uh, I saw your interview years ago on The Dialogue, which is one of the rare interviews. I looked, you don't do these very often. I noticed, or, or if you I do, I can't find it. Really, uh, <laughs> maybe because of that one. Maybe because I wore shorts on a on a on camera. Somebody said, "Jesus." <laughs> well, we can deal with the drooling, but shorts and the, cur and the cursing and the drugs. I mean, and the, 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 the um, alcohol. Excuse me. And the, yeah. <laughs> But anyway, so my friend, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, my first question to you is why in God's green earth did you want to get into this insane business called Hollywood? Oh, it was, um, uh, it almost feels like it was never a choice. I, um, uh, and, and interrupt me if I get too uh, uh, long-winded with family history, because any biography you ever read is sort of like, oh God, he's talking about his grandfather. My grandfather and my grandmother came out to Hollywood in the 20s and were uh, a, a, a very prolific director on my grandfather's side and a fairly successful actress on my grandmother's side for a number of years. Um, they show up on TCM a few times a year, sometimes in a sort of the graveyard shift, and they both have stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, which started around 1950. So there was a lot of sidewalk back then. So it's there are those names you kind of pass by and go, uh, all right, that's the uh, they, they were they were pioneers on the sidewalk, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, he he directed um, a lot of movies with almost everybody famous from back then. John Wayne, Shirley Temple, uh, the Marx Brothers. Um, Stern Rogers, his uh, maybe not their best films, but uh, he worked with them all. He did make a very celebrated Laurel and Hardy movie called Sons of the Desert, which is in the Library of Congress. So that's his sort of claim to fame. He was named, his name was William A. Sider. And the only person I've ever met who actually knew who he was was Martin Scorsese, because that's just because he's Marty. And my grandmother's name was Marion Nixon, and she was sort of a clotted gold bear type uh, type worked with a, a young Spencer Tracy and a young Joel McRae and Jimmy Cagney was in a couple of John Ford movies um, and but retired when she married um, my grandfather and started a family. So I grew up with the lore of Hollywood around me. My parents were not in the industry, but my father was who was not involved uh, and had no relation to the industry was a cinephile um, and took me to a revival theater, the Rialto Theater in South Pass, which is where Griffin Mill in The Player goes and kills the screenwriter. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, a harbinger of things to come for me. Anyway, so I was seeing movies very young, and then uh, luckily two things, I think, happened at a special age, uh, I think, there's something about 10, 11, 12, especially maybe for boys, where they kind of get into story and movies. And the, when I was that age, Steven Spielberg um, got sort of coronated, meaning he he was on the scene with Jaws and Close Encounters. But that was like, that's the Raiders Lost Ark, E.T., Poltergeist sort of hat trick. Um, that along with the um proliferation of the vcr so all of a sudden i had access to movies besides revival theaters and so from that point on it was i was just movie nuts and there was um sometimes unfortunately no looking back um <laughs> another feeling 
hopefully the not too long-winded answer to your question. So then, so after, so I, I, I think you and I come from the same uh, similar vintage as far as age is concerned. And uh, I grew up in a video store as well. I actually worked in a video store for so many years. So, that, I mean, that opened my eyes was sit mm -hmm. to cinema was video stores. So at what point did you say, you know what? I think I want as much powers as I can in Hollywood. So I'm going to become a screenwriter. Uh, and how did you start bumping around as a screenwriter? Because I'm assuming you said you had no connections in the business at this point. No, my last living connection was probably Ernst Lubitsch. Um, it was, <laughs> I, it was apparently a good friend of my grandfather's. He had died by 1964. I was born in 70. Uh, so everybody, I, I had nobody to call. And, um, and because at, uh, 11, 12, uh, turn, let me turn off so that it doesn't make that noise. Um, I started emulating, Spielberg and making backyard movies with on Super 8 and then and then Beta uh, and then uh, VHS. <laughs> so uh, so my uh, so he was my um, role model and then probably uh, like a few years later um, when I got snarkier Billy Wilder and but there were always sort of writer directors uh, who were my um, heroes or who I aimed to be. So I had absolutely no interest in being a screenwriter in the business, and uh, but I wanted to write my way into the chair, so to speak, um, which I, I kind of made the mistake of going to a liberal arts college, college back east because it was uh, it was off track. But I, you know, I did it. It happened. Uh, <laughs> it's my claim to fame from that is that I was a in the first incarnation of the comedy group Broken Lizard, which has gone on to yeah. do supers. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So I was yeah. like a freshman when they were juniors and seniors. So Jay, and, Jay was on the Jay was on the show. I love Jay. Yeah. So that so for, for like a year I was there Terry Gilliam. I was like making the movies Nice. Uh, and uh, and then they went to New York and uh, I ultimately went to L.A. And um, uh, anyway, so uh, what's my story? Oh, yeah. So I was going to write myself my way into the chair. Uh, but I was also very poor and living in L.A. in a hand me down Mazda with pretty much all my clothes and possessions in the back of it, going from couch to spare bedroom to sometimes sleeping in the car. Um, and not really, and kind of refusing to take a job because I was just intent on writing my way in. I mean, a permanent job. I was a dry cleaner for a while and worked on a construction site for a little bit. Um, and, uh, and then three years of that, and I got lucky. Somebody, I got a writer named Neil Tolkien read one of my scripts and gave it to his agent lawyer who became my agent lawyer. And there was one script called Best Laid Plans that I thought, this is my thing to direct like this is the right size movie i know it it's like a good first film and then somebody <laughs> then mike newell sorry i was like debating okay do i name names yeah mike newell's company read it and mike newell who was coming off of who had just made um <laughs> al pacino johnny depp uh, gangster movie oh uh danny brasco thank you god mm -hmm. I was just making that said, oh, I want to direct this next and on this level with these people. And I said, well, geez, 
I guess I got to say yes to that. So I sort of sold the script and literally turned around. Donnie Brasco opened big and he said, I can't do this movie. I need to do a bigger movie, but we'll we'll find a director. And, and I was like, I want it, but I couldn't. I'd sort of taken the check. His next movie was Pushing Tin, so serves him fucking right. <laughs> um, and but I got I got bait and switched on the movie I should have directed first. Uh, the other movie that I'd written that sold was Ravenous, which was not a good first movie because it's up in the mountains with snow and it turned out to be oh. a completely calamitous production. Is that is that the one with Guy Pierce? Yes. Yeah, Guy was on the show. I think he. Re I remember him saying, "Yeah, Ravenous. That was a rough situation." <laughs> yeah, it was a rough situation. Um, <laughs> but strangely enough, a movie that has a lot of fans and like, oh yeah, just up on Criterion Channel and like survives in a way. Best laid plans, very like terrible movie. Uh, every, lots of nice people involved. Very easy production. Uh, lots of very good actors, all in the wrong roles, um, and. Uh, after that, I was like, I took six months off. I was so bummed out about the industry. Um, well, let me ask you, and, let me ask you, yeah. so, so let me ask you this. So, uh, how many scripts did you write before you got the first one sold? I'd written, f uh, four or five. How did you, did you take any courses or did you take any, anything to like learn it? Or did you just pick up a book Again, and format as it? a kid? I was all, I was already so nuts about movies that I was reading adventures in the screen trade. By the time I was okay. 12 or 13, I was, I think at 14, um, taking a Sid field class where he distributed sure. the first 10 pages of body heat by Larry Kasdan, which mm -hmm. is how I learned not only about screenwriting, but about heterosexual sodomy. Um, that's a joke I have with Larry. Oh, we we can laugh about it now. Anyway, so I was I was already sort of reading scripts, which was a lot harder in the pre-internet days. Of, sure, you know, like you really had to go find them. So I was sort of like, uh, to some degree, self-taught. And college, I talked to a professor into letting me take a write a screenplay for credit one semester. Or so. That was the first one I like feature length one I had done. And then uh, and then those three years of sort of like living hand to mouth, um, I churned oh, out sorry. three, three more. And I also tried my hand at a couple of TV, like half hour TV scripts and which taught me that I should not write for friends or The Simpsons or Seinfeld because I gave them to my friends. I had, I had friends who were basically running Seinfeld. I thought, oh, they'll give me a job. And they read him and said, you're a feature guy, um, which was a nice way of saying <laughs> this. Is good. Um, but this is so you were you were in a car, basically living basically day to day. I, I, I just want people listening to understand, like the kind of tenacity that takes for three years run, running around L.A. Did you just have a laptop and you were just trying to you squeezing in stuff at coffee shops or doing it in your car? Like, how do you mentally deal with not knowing where your next meal is coming? Not, and not, not maybe not that extreme, but still like really not having a place to live or jumping here and there, really struggling and yet still be creative enough to write. Um, I'm trying to remember actually like when laptops came on the scene because it may have been like lugging around a monitor. The typewriter? Yeah. Um, oh, geez, yeah. But I mean, there were, listen, uh, 
there's a, a great injustice in Hollywood, which is, um, I would say from my experience, not systematically, systemically racist, but systemically uh, favors those who have a trust fund or who can be in a mailroom unpaid or who can mm. um, survive for a while. And while, yes, I was working hand to mouth, like I had a, uh, my mom was in Denver and I could like escape and go and live in her basement and churn out a script. Um, and so I had, uh, I, I, I didn't have any money, but I did have a diploma from an overpriced university and sort of like more of a safety net, even in that existence, than like, I knew I wasn't going to be like homeless. In, homeless. Um, right. So it's a good story, but it's also sort of like, uh, and I'm glad I went through it because uh, there is something to pay, paying your dues uh, besides being able to go on a podcast 25 years later and say so. Um, but that said, there is something that is, uh, there, there, there's, there's a reason why um, kids from liberal arts colleges or reasonably uh, well-to-do backgrounds um, do well in Hollywood because they can kind of survive those uh, questionable years. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, oh, what's my point? Um, so yes, it was, um, but also, I mean, there's something about, uh, the, you, you don't realize you're going to miss about youth that is very, uh, very known about music. Meaning if you're in rock into rock and roll and you're not kind of making traction by 25, like you, you gotta, like you, you, that energy is, musically like, like you need that for rock and roll uh it's not as true for movies but it kind of is meaning um they're novelists who probably start at 50 uh you, you cinema is like a little younger than that um and so and there's a certain energy that uh in which you you're coming up with a lot of stuff younger than you are older um agreed and, and so uh so while i really wish I'm really glad I'm not living in my car anymore. I really would love to sort of get back to that. Of, of that, that guy, that guy, that guy. And, and also the, 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 you know, doing anything artistic is a leap of faith. You've got to have to have a dream and believe that dream could possibly come true well enough to pursue it. And you have enough experiences where things get completely rat fucked and you sort of, and it becomes a greater f fight to have that, to keep that dream alive. And so it's like, Oh God, I got to do this. I got to, I got to, yeah. I got to suffer the slings and arrows again. Jeez. But yeah, but as you get older, you, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but you know, your level of what you put up with just goes down. Like things I put up with in my twenties, I would never put up with in my forties. Just, oh, yeah, yeah. just, it's just, you just, you will do so much more when you're younger to get to where you want to be. But after two or three decades, you're tired and you're like, no, man, I just don't, I don't want to do that anymore. I won't let, I, I just won't do it anymore. So I agree with you. Like there's things that I remember myself in the 20, my, my early 18 teens and twenties that I was just, the things that would just be flying. The energy was different. Yeah. You're not as beat down uh, as much <laughs> at that point by the business. And I, and I guess I'm proud that at that time I took all that energy and, suffered and put it towards writing and trying to get uh, things going as opposed like I 
I really had no very little social life. Uh, so yeah, we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And I'm sure there are people who can like juggle both and, uh, and make it happen. But, uh, people, I know people who had more fun in their twenties than I did. Uh, but, um, it's uh, it's sort of what you have to do. You can either cho- choose life or <laughs> career at that point. So, all right. So, after Ravenous, you know, and 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 that other script that you wrote, how did you get this job to writing Ocean's Eleven? Like, it doesn't there doesn't seem a direct line to that. Um, moving from a cannibal western uh, black comedy <laughs> doesn't suggest- to a, to a, a t- to a big Las to a Vegas big movie with, with 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 the biggest movie stars in the world and and Steven Soderbergh. Right. Well, um, so as I said, uh, after after those first two experiences, where because I I kind of broke in in the fall of '96, and for about a year there, I was like the shiny new screenwriter boy in town, and 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 I had two movies going, and it was like uh, very heady days, and then ran into the brick wall of those productions. Or of of the reality of the business, took six months uh, six months off. Had to had had sold another idea and was so either bummed out or uh, also I'd learned the lesson of like I sold something because of the excitement of agents and the business to sell this thing and I just didn't have any idea of how to tell this story or what the story was and I learned a valuable lesson there which I guess I could maybe help out anybody out there which is. There are a bunch of reasons to write scripts, the money, the, who you can get to work with, the cocktail value of saying, oh, I'm working with this or on this. Uh, and those are all great. And if you don't know what you're writing or you have no enthusiasm for that, all those those three reasons will not help you out when the rubber has the right. Like you need to care, like have some kind of um, excitement about what you're writing or else uh, you're in trouble, hopefully. Um, or you're just a sociopath mercenary and you can pump it out. Good for you. I've met those um, two. I've met them as well. Anyway, so I so I'd given back like a lot of money and also realized these two movies were gonna come out in the next year and that wasn't gonna do me any favors, presumably. And uh a friend of mine worked for Jerry Weintraub, who had a deal at Warner's. His name was Chris Buchanan, and he sent me oceans that it, it had been one of those movies that like there had been talk about oh is there a way of bringing i don't back. even know the word reboot yeah, uh bring it back re- somehow i think back yeah. then it was even still just remake um and for a uh having grown up a cinephile uh and and also a guy who really kind of knew old movies and classic hollywood um better than my contemporaries and who was heavily influenced. The Great Escape was a major movie for me growing up. Um, Magnificent Seven, those sort of John Sturgis uh, number of movies. Uh, slightly less so, Dirty Dozen. The Professionals, I thought, was terrific. Um, I had somehow missed Oceans, just never seen it. Um, probably because it was never recommended to me. It's... Uh, uh, Scorsese loves it, I, I, I think, for personal reasons, and I... And actually, we uh, we never talk about. He's never seen the remake, 
and um, and we Ooh, never. Marty? Marty's never Scorsese seen. just never watched it. He, he I, uh, th- that's a story for either later in the podcast or another day. But uh, <laughs> I, I fell into Scorsese's life because he saw Ravenous. <laughs> that's uh, which kind of <laughs> makes me love him all that's more. Amazing. That's um, amazing. But I've always thought it was more of an infamous movie. Like uh, watch these guys phone it in and Sinatra wearing sweaters. And so, right. and when I finally watched it, I sort of thought, yeah, boy, that's a disappointment. Like it has the to kind of the concept generally for a fun movie and that and it's the in the genre but i really don't care about this movie and i think i passed on it a couple of times um basically they had developed a script by a guy named steve carpenter who had written a direction movie called soul survivor with casey affleck i think Mm -hmm. and that script was pretty faithful to the original in that the it was it was a bunch of army buddies who thought, hey, we should apply our military skills to this. And they reassembled. And there was a guy who was very close to Sinatra's character, a Dino, a Sammy like that. And um, uh, and I kind of read that and I said, this is sort of feels like what I just saw uh, updated. And I can't remember. Um, sorry, I'm telling the long winded version. But so I passed on it a couple of times and I think I was I was driving around and I was either listening to the Touch of Evil soundtrack because I was a nerd by Henry Mancini, which is kind of a cool like uh, or David Shire's music from Taking a Pelham, which is uh, also sort of and, and I just sort of thought, oh, like I get the vibe of what this movie could be like. It has that um, because there's something about music especially for me but i think a lot of people like m- music can be an inspiration for movies of just because it's a feeling like you're going to mm-hmm. get this movie is going to give you this feeling this music is going to give you this feeling and that's i think sort of what compels us to go see things and to listen to things of like i want to be scared right now or i want to be titillated or what uh mm-hmm. or moved. um it's I'm all over the place. I'm going to come back to oceans, but there's a, my, one of my favorite things I've read about movies is Martin Amos wrote an appreciation of Spielberg in the early eighties. And he says that he kind of boiled it down to that Spielberg had a talent for, um, streamlining an emotion to an audience, whether it's Jaws, fear and adventure, close encounters, awe, Raiders adventure again, and then E.T. love, and that that, um, and there's a brilliance in that, and I think that's still to some degree the secret of his of his success for whatever, um, uh, along with craft and genius and some other stuff. Um, so uh, so I had the sense of like, oh, there's this feeling of cool that I think could be in this movie. And also secondarily, it struck me of like the, one of my comfort movies growing up along with my, I have an older brother who's, who's uh, also movie crazy and also a writer. And we would just watch the sting at, at nauseum. Yeah. Uh, George Roy Hill's film of David S. Ward's script. I try to include both names when I can, because um it doesn't get it doesn't happen very often <laughs> because the the auteur theory is such garbage and that all movies being identified by the director is um yeah. calamitous or 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 or, or even i'd sorry i just like the sight and sound list that just came out 
where everybody like obviously they've chosen things because to diversify the directors but that doesn't mean that the movies they're choosing the like the whole crews were uh different genders and stuff anyway sorry soapbox um oceans 11 so i hear that music i love the sting so i tell buchanan okay i'll meet but i don't know about this I don't know if I'm the right guy. But are or, you like working uh, at this point? Or did you have right? another job? Do you have another job? Or it's like, because this is no, I, I, I quit the other gig. The, right. I had given back so the you're money. Looking for, so you're I, looking for work, but you're, you're still saying, I don't know. And I'm also trying to get, like, I feel like I got off track because I gave up my directorial debut. And so I'm trying to figure out, okay, how do I get back I'm to disillusioned? Yeah. But it's sort of like, okay, I need to make some cash. Or I like I have this potential to do this, and I and I don't want it to like. There's opportunity, and I know I can't just piss it away. So I go in with Chris, and I meet Weintraub, who's a character who oh. is, you know, uh, I, I won't go through his whole history, but he's he he can be or could be extraordinarily charming. And he, I came in, and he said, uh, "You can go." I got a place out in Kenny Bunkport, right next to President Bush. You can live next to him. I'll get you. I'll get you a cook in Maine. You can work out in Maine. It'll be great. Which, by the way, an offer that never came through. I never heard another word about like, oh yeah, you can have the Kenny Bunkport estate. So, I sort of um, tap dance around like uh, like some ideas, but for some reason. Like they think I'm right for this, and at the time, also Brett Ratner was attached to direct. Okay. Um, this is oh, he was hot. I'm trying to think of what else he had. Uh, sort of, you know, he was a uh, he a extraordinarily uh, successful young director at the moment. And I met Brett, and he was a full of enthusiasm, but nobody was saying this is. Uh, this is what we want. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Which was actually great to hear because I just, um, I, and I've since learned it's very hard for me to say, to take somebody else's idea and say, oh, let me execute that for you. Yeah, um, and there are people who are, I've met who are really talented. It is a talent. Um, but, um, but it's difficult for me anyway. So I went off, I got the job, I went off and I sort of, um, I actually worked with my brother, Nick, a little bit on this and sort of thought this whole army idea gives me no motivation for a heist. Like, it's just sort of like, it's a reason for them to make money. Whereas I love the sting and in the sting or in the Magnum seven or the professionals, there's sort of that code of this is what we do. Like it's a, it's a sort of professionalism. And I thought I'd rather make a movie about guys who do this. And this is the Mount Everest of that. Um, and be pretty unfaithful to the original. Um, so wrote about 40 pages of that. I think I've told this somewhere else, but I'm just, now I'm just, you can edit all this, right? <laughs> I give the pages to Chris Buchanan who's the VP at Weintraub, one of two, uh, just to say, look, I'm working, <laughs> like, as proof of life, of, uh, of progress. And while he's enthusiastic, someone else at the Weintraub company, who's a little competitive with Chris, steals the pages, 
reads them, takes them to Jerry and says, Griffin's completely off roading. He's written this thing that has that is not Ocean's Eleven, and uh, you need to call him in. So I get summoned to the woodshed by Jerry Weintraub, who says, "Listen, this is all wrong. These guys, they got to be friends. You're making them thieves. Danny Ocean's coming out of prison. He's a loser. You got to start over." <laughs> and I say, "I understand now." At this point, Chris, God bless him, has given the script to Basil Iwanek, who's the Warner's executive on the project, who's read it. And Basil calls me and says, don't listen to Jerry. Just keep going. <laughs> um, so I do. Uh, I'm, I, I turn it in. And at that point, because of like this, all this nonsense, I'm sort of like, uh, again, sort of sick of Hollywood. And I moved to New York. I think this is like fall of 99. Um, in the interim, oh, and what's happened in the interim is that Brett Ratner has got the movie Family Man going with Nick Cage and T. Leone and, uh, is now is no longer available. So Jerry's pissed because he's lost his director because I, I didn't write the script overnight. Um, and, uh, but what has also happened in the interim is that, uh, Warners has made this deal with Soderbergh and Clooney. They've started a new production company there. And so um, when I do turn the script in, I think the first move is they offered it to um, Damon and Affleck to star, which I think is a rotten idea because they're too young, like they're too green. It's the it's the young guns version of of Ocean's Eleven. Right. If that makes sense. And um, and very thankfully, Matt agrees with me um, and they pass. Um, so then they go to Soderbergh and Clooney, uh, who sign on, uh, which is like January of 2000. Yeah, uh, by the way, by the way, but George Clooney at that point, he had done, he had done out of sight. They'd make uh, out of sight in 98. I think his he, first, Clooney's first like, movie movie was Peacemaker with. No, no, no. Movie movie was from yeah. Dustal Dawn. That was his first movie. That was the first time he made a, a feature of that okay. as an action star. Then okay. he did. Then he brought him his piece. Of, but he's still not a megastar. He's a, he's a star, but he's not a megastar at this point. Ocean's Eleven sends In him to the stratosphere. Two thousand, uh, the perfect storm. But oh, that's know, right. He's a, yeah, he's that, which is debatable because it's like, is he the star or is the wave? Um, <laughs> I would agree with you on that. And Mark, but it's and really, Mark is in that as well. Mark Wahlberg's in that, and yeah. But there is the perception of and and Three Kings did well, but not mega well. Uh, so it's certainly the perception of like that he can lead a movie, star in a movie, but whether he's like, um, and I would say there are very few people who are movie stars, and that just because they're in the movie, it's a hit. And I'm I'm not even sure if you could say George was ever got to that in the way that Julia Roberts was like. Who care? I don't know what the title is. It's the movie's called Julia Roberts. Uh, <laughs> Liam's that way. Nicholson was that way. Cruz is that way. It's it's rarefied air. Um, anyway, so um, so in the uh, January two thousand, they sign on. I'm in New York, but uh, Soderbergh just has Aaron Brockovich coming out, which actually proves to be is like the movie that really kind of restarts things out of sight got, got cred but it flopped um 
Aaron Brockovich scratches and, and he wants to make traffic first. So in this irony of like the Warner Brothers is in too much of a hurry to wait for Brett to do Family Man. But then when they give it to Steven and he says, I need to wait a year, they say, oh, OK. Um, and so we are not going to start until 2001. And uh, but then like the I had like some notions of casting and and for the Rusty Ryan role, I'd always had like what I would say is like the really terrific actor who isn't quite a movie star, whether it's <laughs> the equivalent would be, oh, God. I don't know, like, but it went to a movie star. <laughs> for, at the time, like Jeff Goldblum, Kevin Spacey, there were certain people who were like, who were like, oh, I and I would almost say that I've not seen Ocean's Eight, but Ocean's Eight sort of does this in that it's Sandra Bullock and Kate Blanchett. Like Kate Blanchett's like a really interesting person to put in that, but she's not a movie you put in. She's not the star. She's not a movie star. Of that kind of movie. Uh, anyway, right. so when Brad Pitt comes aboard, that's a surprise to me. Like, that's an elevation. The rest of the cast, I always knew it was going to be, like, padded. Um, and the one rule I did write for a specific actor was I wrote um, Saul for Alan Arkin. And we do uh, cast him, and he does a table read, which is one of the funniest two hours I've been in a room like he is so spectacularly funny and then i had to drop out two days later for because of a medical uh crisis which happily 23 years later was no big deal uh so carl reiner replaced him um why am i still uh, anyway so uh, i guess your original question was how did a guy with two flop movies coming out that's that's the uh, answer <laughs> turn into that which was like step by step meaning it was like it was a it was sort of a broken development thing uh i barely squeezed by what like a, um i'm not sure maybe i didn't know enough just to say oh i'm gonna throw out your concept and start over uh and then uh also luck because lots of uh, it i mean not just like family man could have not come together it could have been a brett movie and he could have cast charlie sheen uh yeah. or, and, Cage, and Chris and Tucker that and Chris been, Tucker <laughs> and Chris Tucker, which would have been a different thing. And who knows? Uh Matt and Ben could have said yes. Um there's at some point I asked if somebody at Warner's who do you think is going to direct this movie as I turn it in and they said Brian Robbins. And that's a Brian Robbins who's now wow. running Paramount. And it's just sort of like, oh, you, you see this as really broadly comic. Like um and you know to some degree I'm jumping ahead of myself, but same thing happened. This is what uh, on Tower Heist, which in some ways there is a version of that which I like more than Oceans. So all all the you know, it's the reverse decision. Meaning, um, again, I like I don't think they cast it the way I would have cast it. Uh, mm. Like I think it was ultimately pursued too comedically. Got it. Got it. Got um, it. And if they had if they had kept it real, I, I think it uh, and um, and not <laughs> cast comedians, mm-hmm. it would have been an event, uh, or at least that's more of what I had in my head. All right. So now, so Ocean's Eleven gets made. Um, you know, basically sets up George for the rest of his life as a not only a megastar but a tequila uh, magnate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Which without was Ocean's his original dream. 
obviously at the beginning he's like i'm gonna make this movie and then eventually sell yeah. that tequila company for obscene amounts of money yeah. <laughs> but alcohol representative exactly exactly but uh, to be fair though without the the coolness of oceans 11 that pretty much sets up george for that cool vibe that he had we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show I mean, the Vegas vibe and the other movies that he made and everything, it was all set up off of Ocean. So uh, he owes you a check. I'm just throwing that out there. Call George. He owes you a check. I, I saw him that he gave a million dollars to all his best friends a couple yes. years ago. And I, yeah, I, I saw was, that. And I looked at my phone waiting for it to ring. <laughs> didn't, didn't happen. Uh, all right. So after Ocean's Eleven comes out, I mean, it's a mega hit. It's a massive, massive, massive hit worldwide. Um, how does the town treat the guy who wrote Ravenous and that other movie? <laughs> right. to after after the fact like because you're in the middle of this hurricane i always love asking screenwriters and filmmakers who get caught up in a in, in kind of this a cyclone of a movie how does the town cheat you what lessons did you learn during your water bottle tours because at this point you have a golden ticket if i'm not mistaken or is am i wrong on that like you i mean they're Certainly looking for your next project a, a, a change not only in like uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know, certainly people are a little nicer to you. And then when you're in rooms talking about something, you have a credibility that from success that you didn't have before, as opposed to a credibility from doing a good piece of work. Right. Um, Two different and things. And jumping ahead again, I made it uh, 12 years ago. I made a TV series called Terriers, which only lasted a season because it was commercially disaster like it just didn't get watched by anybody however uh it was like got a lot of critical love and like they're now a podcast or two about it and it for a, a one season show like it's uh, like ravenous it's still like it's a thing that won't die and i talked to a lot of people say uh, who always volunteer not always sorry but who often volunteer how much they love it i've never however it didn't because it was good in a lot of people's minds, didn't make my phone ring. I, like if it had been successful, I'd have a TV career uh, now. Right, you uh, could write a bad script that made five hundred million dollars, and the phone's going to ring. But if you write the best script yeah. ever, and it doesn't make any right. money, no cares. No so cares. it is better in ways to be lucky than good. But <laughs> um, but uh, so Oceans is 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 quite successful, and I sense it. And even before it's come out. I've been able to set up this project, Matchstick Men, uh, at Warner's that is making Oceans uh, with my brother to write with me, uh, sort of to get him because he had helped out considerably uh, on Oceans, on sort of figuring it because there were the, one of the challenges of Oceans to step backwards for a second is is that there's just a lot of plumbing, there's a lot of structural okay. work. Of, you have eleven guys you have oh. to take care of and there's a balance and you have to keep them all active and um, it's a juggling it's a juggling act it's a juggling yeah. it's a major juggling so, act so it's, so it's just sort of like there there's a lot of work that should be unseen uh or or reasonably seamless if this movie's going to uh work and that was just a little like a little daunting so so I write uh Magic Men with my brother and uh which has its own sort of and and I'm I'm attached as producer as well because 
coming off the experience of the first two movies, I didn't want to, where I was left out of rooms about who's going to direct this, who's going to be in it, how do we promote this? Uh, and I was furious at times of like, that producers who'd really never produced anything were were in rooms that I was not allowed into because of I was the writer, just the writer. Um, I made th that a point. And, um, and, and again, I, and yet the, the same thing happened in that um, Robert Zemeckis uh, reads the script. Um, and um, for those who haven't seen Magic Man, I'm going to, Spoil it because it's been you. It's been twenty years. You've had your spoiler. Chance. Spoiler alert. Fast so, forward if you want. So, to so it's the, it's based on a book, and in the book, there's a con man who finds out he has a daughter, and he tries to uh, start a relationship, uh, and uh, it, it all goes everything goes sideways, and at the end, he realizes that he's been conned, that it's not his daughter, and um, uh, and the book ends with him being like, "Oh, I got taken." Uh, and when I read that, I thought. Uh, there's a lot of I like this story. I just um, I actually kind of hate the twist for a guy who likes twist movies. I like uh, I, I'm, I, it's unfulfilling. I, maybe I saw it coming. I don't know. So when I pitched to Warner's, I say uh, I want to do this book, but I want to actually take the twist out and just make it like an authentic emotional drama, but with with crime and stuff in it. But it should be. Um, not a tearjerker because that feels, but yeah. uh, going back to the Spielberg thing, it should deliver emotion of, of emotion. that you. Uh, uh, it's about a relationship, and I uh, we write that script, and we actually get uh, Alfonso Cuaron is interested. Fortunately, this is Alfonso Cuaron coming off of Great Expectations for Warner's, which was yeah. not a success. So it's pre Itumama Alfonso Cuaron. And so um, even though that's really enticing to me, uh, we also get a call from Robert Zemeckis saying, uh, I love this, but I, I read the, I heard about this twist and I'd like to put that back in. And Warner's, is, Lorenzo de Bonaventura is the head of Warner's is saying, you should, do, you should go with Zemeckis and um, make the change. And, and, and so while I may be a hot director, a hot writer, I'm a baby producer. And so, I, I go to a meeting with Zemeckis, who, by the way, is about as smart a director with story as any I've met. Like, he, he does come from a writing background, and he is like, oh, yeah. all of the directors I've worked with in talk in script meetings, he's probably the sharpest because uh, he... That's saying a lot. You've worked with some amazing people. <laughs> yeah, but he's really the like the writer of the... I mean, when you look at Back to the Future, that's a... It's, it's a perfect script. A, perfect. Uh, incredible script. So, so basically, he says... Like, I'd like to make this twist work. And I say, okay, but if we put the twist in, I need an epilogue of, um, with this, these two characters coming together again, like something like Brief and Cat, or some, something where you see, like, oh, he may have been bullshit, he may have been taken, but there was, it wasn't all a lie, meaning there was there, the relationship, there was something there. So we write that script. Zemeckis says, great, I'm going to send it to Tom Hanks right now. He does. Tom Hanks reads it and goes, Let's do Polar Express instead. So Zemeckis, Zemeckis is off the movie, going to make Polar Express. And just like Mike Newell, it's sort of like, okay, now who's going to direct this thing? Well, you, found, Luckily, you, found that, you found that young and up-and-coming director to direct that. Was his name Ridley something or other? 
Yes. Uh, he was a very exciting young guy. I went to, um, and here, here's a, a lesson I learned, and I feel like I may have told this story again too, but uh, no, I'm just playing the hits. I'm just like that old guy. Like, I, I saw Bud Bedeker interviewed once, and he just told the same, or twice, and he told the same stories in both interviews because um, he was old. Um, and uh, anyway, so I get invited to some cocktail party during award season in honor of uh, uh, David Lynch, because I think it's the year of Mulholland Drive, but that also means that Ridley has been nominated for Black Hawk Down, and he's there, and I've met his girlfriend, now wife, Janina Fascio, uh, one of the great whirling dervish, phenomenal women of uh, of all time. And I'm petrified of meeting Ridley, and but she dr drags me across and, and sits me down with him. And I'm just like, not quite sure what to say, except what are you doing next? And he says, I've got this movie, Tripoli, but it's going to take nine months to prep all this and tells me the story. And I say, well, I got this little movie you could shoot like right here while you're doing all that. And then he says, well, send it. And the next day I send it to Janina. She reads it, gives it to him. The next week, we got Ridley Scott, um, which teaches you always go to that cocktail party. Um, when invited, go to the. If lessons to learn, if there's a if there's an opportunity to celebrate David Lynch, go do that and then meet Ridley Scott. Um, I got I got to say though, so for people listening, and this is something that's so underestimated that the universe works the way the universe works, and you just happen to fall into. A lot of it seems like from the stories you've told so far, you fall into these things like opportunities kind of present themselves. You're doing the work and mm -hmm. you've got the script and you're doing things. But like what? Like, how do you plan that? You can't plan that cocktail party for David Lynch that you happen to sit at the table with Ridley Scott and he happens to have a, a window of opportunity. There's a lot of luck involved. But the point is that you have to kind of keep working and keep moving forward for to be ready for that luck when that luck shows up. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Right? Basically, because if you would have yeah, gone to that environment, if you would have gone there without a script, you would have been like, I met Ridley Scott that night. That's kind of cool. Yeah, but if you had nothing. Swell. Uh, and there's good luck and bad luck. And then uh, it was great luck that I really did it and that Matt and Ben said no and that uh, whatever. And then there's bad luck that. Uh, what have I already said? The yeah. Nestle plans just went to the wrong people, or so, so like like the, the, every movie you can kind of look at and say it is a it is a consequence of these planets aligning or not aligning. Um, and and there are all the stories about like how Casablanca almost was Ronald right. Reagan, which it really wasn't. But um, they but were writing that as they were going. That year was that person was hot. And so that's why that movie was with that. Like, um, uh, so there's, yes, yeah, so there's a lot of luck involved. I would say this as a, you know, my usual piece of advice is that, um, and this is probably true of a lot of things, but in Hollywood, if it's like, if Hollywood is a roulette wheel, it actually allows you to make as many bets as you want to meaning you can kind of cover uh or, or that you can generate um meaning it's um so try to get as many bets on the table as possible which means 
try to write as many very good scripts as you can or just go to that cocktail party or take that meeting because you like uh because you don't know um and uh so this yeah this is an example of that of like it's like all right i'll go to um i'll go to that and that's what happened now i'd also been to probably 25 other unmemorable cocktail parties sure oh yeah uh, so um anyway so so then that leads me into a, a year of making magic man which is probably my maybe one of my favorite years of making a movie because ridley was so much fun and it was a, like a delightful time and we were in town and um uh, like if i could like relive a year just for the fun of it it was great um the movie doesn't do great so and i begin to sense of like oh i don't have this like it is it, it's, it's not i i'm not quite oceans like you're only as good as your next one so it's yeah. not like you're not as shiny anymore you're not shiny I'm, anymore yeah um and um but during the process of making that one i've also or actually going back to even to oceans 11 I'm, you know, it's on my mind always of like, okay, can I direct this thing that I am writing, whatever I'm writing? And on Oceans, it's obviously not a chance, like, it's just too big. It's not a first film. Magic Men, it sort of strikes me of like, well, it's contained, but it really needs a movie star. Like, it's it's not a, uh, if you look at the great first films, which I would go with, let's say, Blood Simple, mm -hmm. uh, Reservoir Dogs. <clears throat> Uh, Body Heat, you look back and you say, well, it was William Hurt and Kathleen Turner, but really, Kathleen Turner, that was her first movie, and William Hurt was, like, not a star yet. Um, uh, I said Blood Simple, which is pretty much unknown. Um, I, I feel like there's another good example of, like, uh, the sm very smart, usually crime-based. Um, right. Uh, the irony is that, like, that Spielberg's first movie, if you consider it Sugarland Express, Not is dual. actually Duels' his first movie. Duels, yeah, but Sugarland, <laughs> Sugarland Express is actually like kind of a good idea for his first movie, but because like Goldie Hawn was a big star, so it's like, and it actually that's the one that doesn't do it for him, right? Uh, <laughs> but the but the shark that with the the broken shark movie is the one that pops yeah. him. <laughs> um, anyway, so I finally I have an idea uh for a first movie uh, even though like i'm I'm still living in the past of wishing i had best laid plans back as a first movie but i think of this one and i when i'm working with soderbergh on oceans i mentioned it to him and he says he has this company with george and that they're they'll produce other people's work and they have final cuts so basically that means i'll have final cut and that sounds phenomenal and and we're like getting along great so we set this movie up which is a comedy, uh, female-led comedy. And then I take too long to write it because I'm it's sort of like I'm I'm being too careful about it. Overthinking um, it. Yeah. Overthinking it. But ultimately in 2003, I'm done. I turn in the studio and um and we sort of uh they seem to support it. And I go, um, but there are only a few people because it's a Warner Brothers movie, which are and it's a Warner Brothers movie because I because it's a Stephen and George whose company is there. Um, it really shouldn't be. It should be 
an independent movie or it should be like Fox, in, Fox Searchlight. Fox Searchlight, somewhere <laughs> like that, which Warner didn't really have. They had briefly Warner's Independent, but it it never yeah. really took. It, it just was not the culture of that place. And so really, like we have, there's kind of one name that they think they'll want to make it with, and that's Jennifer Aniston, who's not had uh-huh. a very successful film career to date, but is has made them so much money on Friends because it's the same company. So we sent it to her. She says yes, but let's wait until we're done. I'm done with Friends in like six, seven months. Um, and I say, great. So we're waiting on that. I'm continuing to push things forward, and we get some. Ultimately, we all, we get a sort of a dream or my dream cast of Kevin Costner and Shirley MacLaine and Mark Ruffalo for this movie. Um, and Richard Jenkins and uh, not to leave anybody else. Um, uh, while I'm waiting for that to go, I forget how much to t- tell about this because this is sort of like one of those I'll tell you later. While I'm waiting for that to go, um, Akiva Goldsman, who I is like has an office down the hallway from me, calls me up one day and says, I got this script. Brad's going to do. We had Halle Berry, but she just walked off, and he's getting cold feet. Will you read it and come to a meeting tomorrow because you just did Oceans, and he's going to listen to you and blah, blah, blah. And I say, great. Send me the script. What's it called? Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Oh, and who's so who's taking Halle Berry's part? Angelina Jolie. Great. So I go in the next day in a meeting with Doug Lyman and Akiva, and Brad meets Angelina at this meeting. And oh, geez, Chris Foster is also the producer. Uh, we spend two days going through the script page by page. This is Simon's script, right? Simon's script, uh, it's got some names on it already. Uh, like Carrie Fisher, I can't remember who else. So, uh, yeah. you never know what's been done, and you don't know if what's been done has been for the better. Like, it's always, but it was Simon, but Simon was the first one who wrote the script. He was, yes, it was, yeah, it was I, I had him on the show, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Anyway, so as a favor to the Pitt family, I do a couple of weeks on this. And and also, just, sorry, oh, I think it's... I see where this I, is going. I, I think it's okay. bad form generally to talk about scripts you've written on that you don't have credit on simply because there's a reason why they have the credit things. And and it's there are some people who say, oh, yeah, I did a couple of weeks on that. And now it's sort of like... it Because it, it, you're really kind of taking away credit. So... I don't like talking about I'm talking about this because it's part of my story, but there are other there's other script doctoring I've done that I don't talk about because it's bad form. It's bad form. Bad form of you know, it um if you go in and you change one line, suddenly people are saying, Oh, well, it wasn't really his script. It was because somebody did something. Um sure. and um <clears throat> anyway, so I I do some time on this and um, which is one of those sort of things where doing the really right thing turns out to be kind of doing the wrong thing for yourself in that uh, and without getting into a lot of details, because this is also sort of the omerta part of show business is you can't talk too much about what actually goes down because you (laughs) one 
even if you will never work with these people again and there are a few people here i'll we'll never work with again like you don't want to have the reputation of like the guy who taught who kisses and tells you want to be a but rat you want to say, be a rat sir you don't want to be a rat right <laughs> but just the short story is i started directing my first movie and at the same time mr and mrs smith is doing reshoots and it's really complicated um everybody's relationships We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. I'll just. The, you know. we all, I, the, the second you brought those names in, I was like, I know where this is going. Right. Oh, well, got it. And so, so I've got a lot to deal with. Oh, um, man. Oh, so God, dude. Uh, uh, I also have like, I'm a, even though I've written some movies and produced a Ridley Scott movie, there are some, like, I'm in a, different chair and figuring out a relationship with a, a DP for the first of my life, which is also not going well. I have a very bad relationship with the DP that I've <laughs> hired at Soderbergh's suggestion, which is basically the one thing he sort of suggested was, oh, this guy's good. Um, and uh, however... I'm re- every day I'm waking up and saying, oh, God, this is Christmas morning. Like, I'm finally directing a movie. And while there's a moment every day where I'm absolutely terrified, like, I'm finally living the life that I have been aspiring to since I was 10. Um, and days are running long, but we're making them. And I'm not hearing from the studio because from the, having now made two movies from them, I know, like, when they're when they show up on set, that's a sign, and they haven't shown up on set. And then two weeks in, Soderbergh and Clooney show up on set, and they say, we've just come from the studio, and they're really unhappy. I say, well, they haven't told me this. And uh, what's so you've the shot two, You've got two weeks on this movie. I've shot two weeks on this. Uh, also, do you want to say the name? Do you want to say the name of the movie? At the time, it was called Untitled Ted Griffin Project. Okay. And... It was set in my hometown, Pasadena, and based on a, a real rumor that I grew up knowing that involved the movie The Graduate. And um, oh yeah, heard of it. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, so they say this. I'm a little confused by it, uh, but they say we're gonna sh- we're gonna shut down for a day. You're gonna oh. change DPs, and I say great. I'm fine with that. They'll give us, we'll take Friday off, go forth. Um, and so I shoot one more day, still haven't heard from the studio. And, um, and then somebody comes to me and says, when I at rap, they say, you have to defend your job tomorrow. Now you're on the chopping block. And I say, all right, but why? Like, what's the problem here? And they say, uh, they say Stephen went to the studio and said none of your footage is usable. I say, well, he told me that they didn't like it. Um, and part of the, there's a long Soderbergh story leading up to this, which I'm not going to tell here. But basically, I go in to meet Stephen the next day with 20 minutes of cut footage, and he won't look at it. Um, he says you're out. Um, uh, I don't need to see this. Oh, and man, that's brutal. Uh, and so a, mo- a project I had started, which was about my hometown, which I had sort of worked on years to get going, is suddenly 
uh, taken away without a note, literally, without a, never heard from the studio. Um, and nobody besides my editor had seen any of the cut footage. So there's, it's not really sort of about that. If you want to fill in the blanks, we can, yeah, blanks sure. and, um, but, and so at that point, it's sort of like, it's like 2.0 of like, oh, this town. <laughs> um, <laughs> Holy cow, dude. And, Holy uh, I- uh, and and also again, for, like this is for the studio that I had started uh, this franchise for. Uh, I'd said no to twelve, which is a whole story we can get into if you want. But I'm now running into Albert Hughes land of like this is going to be the longest podcast. How long <laughs> have we been talking? An hour. Yeah, uh, we're good. Um, we're good. We'll we'll, we'll, hang, we'll hang for a little bit long because okay. we still got to get to Marty, and that's a whole other conversation. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so uh, so from that point on. Uh, what happens next? And then, yeah, and then then I'm just like for a while I'm just like a boxer who's been like punched punched in the back of the head who doesn't know what corner to go to. Like I I, I spend like the months or you know arguably years just sort of like what just fuck just happened. Um, you were blindsided. You were blindsided. You were totally blindsided. blindsided by it. I'm able to do some fun work on some other movies. Uh, and at some point I get hooked up, we'll get right to it. I get hooked up with Scorsese because, uh, real quick, before you get to Marty, you did work on up in the air a bit before all of this happened. I'd been sent the script by Sheldon Turner of up in the air based on, based on the book by Walter Kern and, and come on as producer and potentially director had sold it to Ivan Reitman's (laughs) company at Paramount. I think, or uh-huh. DreamWorks. One of the two. I forgot, I forgot. Too. And I had developed that. My brother had written a draft of it. I had done a bit. And then in the aftermath of my getting fired, there was, like, it was not a good, one, it was not a good first movie, and it was not a good, not a good it was like a better second movie because it really did need a star. And it was like now with the asterisk next to my name of fired, it was like, oh, this is not like I get George or Brad. Uh, And um, so I sort of say, go with God and I step away from it. And I think it was then four or five years passed before I get a call from Ivan Reitman saying uh, Jason has rewritten it and is going to direct it. And I say with Clooney, I say, great. Um, There is a. Uh, Jason made it very much his own. There are a lot of bones from Sheldon's script and a couple of remnants from my brother's rewrite, which are still in there. But um, but I was a one hundred percent AC at the premier producer or executive producer on it. I think got it. Okay, got it. Got it. Got it. Um, got so it. I've ne- I, in fact I've never met Jason. Got um, it. <laughs> that, that, like, that, that that removed that removed from the project. Got it. Yeah. Um, all right. So, however, all right, so, I will say that it was all the success was because of me and no one else. <laughs> obviously, sir. Yeah. Obviously, magnanimously, I will take full credit for its Oscar nominations. <laughs> so, our right, I mean, Ted. I mean, you've gone through so much crap, and I mean, and, and we're just 
scratching the surface, by the way. I know that you've got days and days of stories about what you've gone through. And I really hope people listening understand uh, th- this is stuff they don't teach in school. This is stuff that generally doesn't be, it's not talked about out loud. Uh, you know, these are the things that, it, this is the thing as you and I were at a cocktail party. These are the, you know, you get, you, we have a drink and we, ha- we tell these stories. And I just, that's why I love doing the show because I hope these stories get out there so people understand what the reality of this business is. And it's not, they don't play by rules. <laughs> it, it's rough. Right. It's, it's, um, and, and by the way, it's a lot of the stuff can't be taught. Meaning I, there's a great story in William Goldman's book about Lisa Eichhorn getting fired as the star of this movie all night long, uh, made in 1980. She was starring in this movie opposite Gene Hackman and, uh, overnight. Oh, and, and over a weekend, Somebody gave Streisand the script. The movie's two weeks into production. Somebody gives Streisand the script, and Streisand said, oh, I would have done that or would do that. And the studio goes, oh, we could have a Hackman-Streisand movie. The next day, they fire Lisa Eichhorn, who's doing a great job. They rewrite the script. They resume production with Streisand, and it's a fucking massive bomb, (laughs) which you can't, like, barely can find anywhere. And Lisa Eichhorn's, who's, I've, actually met in the aftermath of my experience she very sweetly called me up and gave me her perspective on some of the people who were involved uh and some of her wisdom hard hard earned wisdom from this uh you know had a really terrific career going and that was like it 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 throws you um of course it even knowing that story going like having read that story it's like there's no way you, you can there's no there's no teaching there's no way to to learn that other than to have a lot of experience and sort of have a sense of people uh, well, you, and, well the thing i was telling you before we jumped on is you know my whole story with the mafia and almost made that yeah. big movie and i met all these big movie stars i never got to the level of your production of like working with these movie stars and and you had already done a bunch of stuff and to be yanked away from you like that is so I, for me, heartbreaking. And I know I went into, I was in depression for three years and it completely destroyed my, my subconscious mind about the business till recently, like within the last five years, I figured out, oh, that's why I've been doing sabotaging myself right. for the last 25 years. Cause I didn't want to go through that pain again. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. It, it, uh, it, and these are the kind of talks that I want people to listen to because it's not all, you know, like I always say people, I always tell people this. I go, you want to know what Hollywood's like? Watch the Oscars on Oscar night, right? And that's mm-hmm. on Hollywood Boulevard. And on the, on the camera, it looks great. But the second the Oscars are over, you don't want to walk down that street. <laughs> right. Uh, you really <laughs> especially don't. At, especially um, at night. <laughs> Wait, I'm 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 going to say three things, and 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 again, I trust that if anything's boring, you can cut this out. Sure. Uh, just one: the movie is called Rumor Has It, which I call Reiner Has It because Rob Reiner took over the movie. Uh-huh. Two. In the aftermath, somebody started an internet rumor about how terrible Kevin Costner was to me and berating me, and how he insisted on me getting fired. I had not started working with Kevin Costner on the movie yet. He was actually an enormous champion in the 
in prep, giving me all sorts of advice about directing, which I was not getting from anybody else on my team. Because he's an Oscar winning director. Oscar winning director, but was like, it, it was extraordinarily helpful and was a great guy. And in the aftermath of my getting fired, like loaned me his beach house to like recuperate in, invited me to his wedding, was just an all-star. Oh. Just to put that to bed, not Costner, other people, lovely people involved, Ruffalo, McLean, just blast, still friends, Jenkins, one of the, I think one of the great actors. So, um, and then, and also in the aftermath, um, uh, my, uh, Mike Dupuzian, who was my first assistant director on the movie, uh, terrific guy, um, had also worked with Phil Kaufman and set me up with Phil for a cup of coffee up in San Francisco. This is 2005. So I'd been fired the year before. And Phil, famously, was fired off the outlaw Josie Wales in 1975. Jesus. A movie came out in 76, so I'm not sure when exactly. But and he was directing for two weeks when he got tapped on the shoulder, and that night was like on a plane back to oh. San Francisco from Montana or whatever. And East, Eastwood, Clint Eastwood, the star, took over directing which begat the GGA rule, the Eastwood rule, which basically says nobody on a crew or in a cast can take over directing, basically to prevent the director from getting sabotaged from within. Sure. Um, and so uh, Phil and I had this cup of coffee. I think he asked me not to repeat the story. So, eh, sorry, Phil. But basically, you know, went through how similar our experiences were. Sure. Uh, not that I think it's like it happens all the time. It, it, it this is sort of rare. They're replaced directors, but um, uh, but people who because Phil had written that script too to have this happen, and and I asked Phil um, one had he spoken to Eastwood in the intervening thirty years, and he said no. I asked him if he'd ever bothered watching Outlaw Josie Wales, and he said no, that he went into a video store once in the 80s, and it was on the TV there, uh, so he just left. Um, and then I sort of, I said something else that was like, now what, and he, and he said, Ted, I, I, I don't want to go, like, I was ir obviously irritating him, or he was still 30 years later. Raw, raw. Raw about it. And for me, it's now coming up on 19 years, and it's sort of like, oh, go fuck yourself. <laughs> like, 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 I, I, oh no, you're gonna go to your grave with it. I understand. I yeah. understand. No, um, I get it. I, trust me, I get it. I, if anybody gets it, I get it <laughs> with okay. my experience when I was young. I get it. No, I completely understand. <laughs> so, I've never seen rumor has it. Uh, and uh, I have, uh, and there, there are uh, three people I have not spoken to since. Fair enough. So uh, then, so so let's 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 turn the page. Uh, mm -hmm. There is this uh, other guy that you worked with uh, by the name of Martin Scorsese. Yes. With all of the stuff that you've gone through, how did you get hooked up with Wolf, Wolf of Wall Street with Marty? Um, I went uh, another. It's a it was a dinner party this time, and I knew I said yes right away. I had a uh, an agent in common, a guy named Chris Donnelly, who continues to represent both of us, and he invited me to a dinner uh, a week before the Oscars for The Departed, and it was oh, a big table of like yeah. ten or twelve people, uh, and uh, Marty was going to be there, and I just 
I decided I'm going to impress. I'm going to try to impress this guy because I know old, I know movies and of everyone I know, I'm the Martin Scorsese of uh, every, of everyone I know. And then I started talking to him and I said, wow, do I have a long way to go to <laughs> like instantly like wildly impressive of like, Oh, there's a mind at work on unlike any I've experienced thus far. And it, and it, uh, when people, you know, misuse the word genius, it's because like, like it, it, it's, it's a, it's a different uh, level of intelligence. Um, but also extraordinarily extraordinary passion and that is unrelenting both in preserving movies obviously making movies and teaching about movies so um so we had a very nice dinner i tried to not blow too I, uh, too much smoke or tap dance too much but um uh and then he won the oscar the next week because you know he could never finally, win an oscar finally jesus yeah um <laughs> And I, and some God, uh, a few months pass, and I get a call from Chris Donnelly saying uh, that this Spanish sparkling wine called Cava Fregenet does a an annual Christmas ad, um, and they back the money truck up to Marty saying make us a short film, which was sort of the in vogue then. BMW was making those, yeah, 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 the David Fincher stuff, Clive yeah. Owen, yeah, and so so. Um, so this was like, and, 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 and so they were saying, do you have any ideas? And I wrote one up, which I thought was a blast, which was that uh, the conceit being that um, Marty's been approached about redoing the Copa shot, the Copa Cabana shot from Goodfellas, the, the long one yeah, sure, yeah. which ends with a bottle of champagne being brought out. And so I thought, okay, he's got to redo that shot for this ad. Only we see all the things that can go wrong in a one and then we see him respond to this in a film that begins to replicate like the part of Goodfellas where Ray Liotta is losing his shit in the last third. That's week. brilliant. So, you know, full, brilliant. Full of voiceover and stopping and things like that. And I thought for like a eight to 10 minute movie um, that could be blast. And I write that up. I think I pitched it to him over the phone, write that up, send it to him. Marty uh, says, Oh, this is terrific. Like come out, next week and we'll start to get to work on it. And I, by the time I land or I get there and, and, he, and I get word of like, Marty doesn't want to do that. Uh, it's too self-referential. I say, totally get that, but Oh God, I'd love to see it, but I totally get that. He says, but he wants to see if you have any, like come and talk and have, if you have any other ideas. So we then spend like three full days in his office in New York. I'm now, 36 uh, about to be 37 and like three years kind of i would say off uh, trying to get it back together again after my beheading or depancing depending on how you look at it <laughs> and but 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 three days of like being able to play tennis against whoever you're bjorn board or, or whatever the, the the absolutely top person you've ever done anything with and being able to sort of like hey i'm in the room with this person and we're hitting the ball back together and not only is it a dream come true but it's also a sort of restoring a confidence restoring of like oh yeah i can i can i i, I can play in this league um and more or less we hit on an idea of like uh kind of a because hitchcock used champagne as a MacGuffin and notorious 
we think, okay, is there something to do with Hitchcock here, uh, who's obviously a big influence on Scorsese, and we ultimately come up with this idea, and then a few weeks later, shoot it over the course of three days, called The Key to Reserva, which we make, it premieres in Spain, um, and Madrid that Christmas, we go out, we both get food poisoning at the premiere, and... <laughs> And fly home, like dire, like vomiting and pooping out of all ends, with, but with Martin Scorsese. So it's a dream so come it, true. Obviously, it's a dream come true. Um, but it's, <laughs> it, it, I would say it's my favorite thing I've ever done. <laughs> short form. I, I, I thought you meant the vomiting and the diarrhea. No, yeah, no, 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 that too, because that was reducing. Um, so I do that. It's it is available on the internet. If you Google, uh, go to uh, YouTube. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Uh, Key to Reserva, it should pop up, Key to Reserva Scorsese. Um, it really works better if you know the works of Alfred Hitchcock. But uh, And I'm in it with him for a little bit. And it's sort of like the, if I just, if I could, if, if I ever get, go to heaven and St. Peter says, I got 10 minutes. <laughs> What do you got, kid? I, I will play this for him. Um, and it's also the one thing I would say I've written where, where it's sort of like across the board, everything was a little better than I imagined, which is as opposed wow. to everything else was like, wow, that worked out great. Uh, I wanted something different from that, blah, blah, blah. This was just sort of like, um, so so it's sort of this, uh, this great experience. And it also kicks off a beautiful relationship in which, weirdly like uh, because I, I can kind of hang with them and talk movies i get pulled back into things he's done two projects with fran lebowitz uh, a documentary called public speaking mm -hmm. which was for hbo in 2010 and then um a netflix series called pretenza city which was a couple years ago um and if you watch those it's sort of he's interviewing Fran Leibowitz and there's a guy sitting next to him that you occasionally sort of hear. That's me. Um, and what, and like I've supplied my voice or in some other docs and uh, weird stuff. And then Wolf of Wall Street uh, about a week before production, Terry Winter, who'd written the script, like had to get back to boardwalk. And so, but there were like things they, they, uh, they just had this massive production. It was so many days and they just needed somebody around to make sure like that they could make their days. And so I was, again, this is not, I'm talking about something out of school because I'm, I was not a writer on it. I was a co-producer, but part of that was saying we can combine these two scenes or, or do this there at just to um, keep the machine uh, running on rails. So, uh, and because I was there for all of that, they threw me in as Kyle Chandler's FBI partner, where you never hear me speak, but I stand around a lot on a boat with him <laughs> and Leo. And then in another scene where Leo's selling stocks to some poor sap on the phone, I'm the poor sap on the phone. You're the you're the guy who he's pretending to fuck up the ass. You mean that? Yeah, that, that yeah, that yeah. I remember yeah, that. Scene. Leo's Leo's thinking about me while he's fucking that guy at the ass. So. <laughs> Um, so, so you were, you were on, you were on set most of the time on that, on that project? Pretty much for, yeah, for the first, uh, definitely, uh, for that first half I was there and then hurricane, when was the, Hur Sandy, like, yeah, 
uh, shut everything down for a week. Uh, I went back to LA and then was sort of like coming back. Um, in and out. Yeah. In and out. Yeah. So, uh, so on that show, I mean, what was, because you were on that show, what was the craziest day that you witnessed that you were like, how the hell is Marty going to get out of this? Is there a day like that that you're like, this is insane. I mean, there's some, um, and it was actually a, a, a lot of answers to that. There are days that I just didn't want to be there. Like uh, the orgy on the plane is just sort of like, it's a lot it's, of extras who are about to get naked and it's just going to be awkward. like, it's awkward. And it's, it's awkward. It's, it's not like there's, there's still a craft service table. Like it's not fun. Like it's, it's just right. filming, filming an orgy is not, as I've cool, never as cool as a pornographic shoot, but I can imagine having read Barry Sonnenfeld's book that you can end up with a face full of feces. Um, one of my, by the way, one of my favorite conversations I've ever had on the show with Barry. That yeah, was the, fir that was the fir first five minutes, by the way, he told that story. Yeah. Um, so, but there were a couple of moments. Uh, I mean, I was very impressed. Um, and this, by the way, I'm one of my favorite stories about uh, Marty is on key to reserve because it was a two-day shoot and at the by the end of two days like we were we needed like a lot more and so we were able to um get a third day paid for and marty put in a 23-hour day now this is a guy who's won every possible award who's at that time 65 years old has nothing to prove to anybody this is a commercial that won't be seen in the states but he works his ass off for 23 hours a day to make it right <laughs> like to make it the Jeez. best possible thing it is and um not and not in a profligate way but but uh because we were had gone now 50 percent over schedule adding a third day to a two-day shoot um and there was something so inspiring about the, the guy who's just can't allow himself to do anything uh any less any less than his best and and they're you know without going naming names, I, I, there's some bad mentors in my career. People I thought, oh yeah, I don't want to be that person or that filmmaker. And 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 Marty is like the Pope. He's he's both the um, the guy who says who is what he says. Uh, who isn't Cardinal McCarrick? Who's the priest who <laughs> raped a bunch? Of I know. Well, yeah, I, 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 I got to be careful. I'm, I, there's libel issues here. Um, yeah. So, but, but on on so on uh, Wolf of Wall Street, that scene on the boat with Kyle Chandler talking to Leo and me standing looming around in the background. That's a six page scene. The, that's uh, a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. That's a, that's a lot of stuff. He did that in one day. Um, uh, daylight dependent. Um, and uh, so something, even a three persons, you know, two and a half person scene like that to, to get that much done is very impressive. I was also there's a, a one of the very complex Steadicam shots when they the FBI raids Stratton Oakmont. And I'm part of it was actually the most fun I had because I got to run and yell at people as an FBI agent. But it was fun watching him, uh, them put that together because it's one of those things where the first take was so terrible and I'm, I'm do, I do it. And then I go back to the monitor and I'm sitting with them and I go, Oh, I know this. Cause if I'm here in the director's chair, I feel all the pressure on me right now because that's terrible and I've got to fix it. And I sort of learned, I, I watched him was like, all right, let's do it again. And 
make this one change. And then we did it again and got a little better. And then maybe five or six more takes and then it was, and it was done. But it, it, there is a lesson of, uh, especially in directing of your, (laughs) at some point things are going to be unsolvable and terrible (laughs) and you won't know what to do, but you will have to one, not freak out to make some suggestion to like, try it again. And then because you're surrounded by professionals, it'll actually suddenly kind of click and, oh, you'll be fine. But it's just sort of like you have to like breathe through that. That's, And again, it's one of those things that you would think you would be, somebody would stop and tell you before directing your first movie or going into the industry. Or when you get signed by an agent, I always thought that there would be some day where somebody would say, uh, sit down and say, okay, you're about to go into a meeting with this producer. Keep this in mind. Think about this blah, blah, blah. You just get thrown into the deep end of the pool yes. uh, in Hollywood. Like mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's purely learning by experience. You can, you can talk to a lot of people, but nobody's going to ever sit you down and say, or at least nobody ever sat me down. And I don't think anybody else <laughs> no. nobody's ever volunteered the, the, the great life lesson speech they got from somebody else. Um, <laughs> so, um, well, so so I mean, it's fascinating that after this this whole this whole gambit of stories you've told us and and your adventures in in the in the in the screen in the in the script screen game as a script game as you say, uh, you even when you went to your lowest point, you still kind of come up from the ashes in many ways and get to work with your hero, one of your heroes, with right. Marty, and and not only once, multiple times, right. uh, on different things. And it's just, I, I feel like that was the universe just going, you know, he's been through some stuff. Let him, let's, let's give him an attaboy. <laughs> uh, I don't know, man. a pretty good because attaboy. Because uh, I mean, I mean, because at the end of the day, this is a magical, it's a, I mean, yes, the throwing up and the diarrhea, that's one thing, which was magical in its own right. But that you're able to, to work with, uh, you know, it'd be the equivalent of, you know, somebody working with Steven Spielberg. Or, yeah. or or Cameron or Kubrick or Hitchcock. I mean, you're hanging out on the set watching a master work. People, someone who you who you idolize growing up, and and I, I've heard from people who've worked with Marty. He's absolutely a genius. There's just his mind works at a completely different. I'm I'm like you. I'm the Martin Scorsese of my group of friends. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Until right, you right. either meet Quentin or you meet Marty. And yeah. when those two get together, that's fascinating to watch there because they just have such a encyclopedic mm-hmm. a knowledge of film. Like I'm like, oh, I'm pretty good. Like you're like, yeah, I've seen a lot of movies, but you're like, no, I'm that's <laughs> right. And, and and there's also something about either making Marty laugh. Or coming up with a good idea that impresses him and you kind of feel like you're just on top of the world for the rest of the day. It's just (laughs) sort of like, I like, it's like, I please dad. And because he's getting older in this business, there are fewer and fewer dads. Uh, And not about age. It's not even about age. This is more about like, oh, that person didn't turn out to be what I hoped or 
uh, you realize you, you walk into some rooms and they're the, the people aren't as smart as you'd hope they'd be or aren't as passionate about movies. They're there for the wrong reasons. And they're, and Hollywood attracts people for a lot of the wrong reasons. So when you find like that person who can be, who really impresses you, it's sort of like they're uh, it, it feels great to sort of um, impress them. What, if, if you had the chance to go back to your, to your to yourself when you were just about to come into this business what would be the one thing you wish you would tell yourself like watch out for this besides rumor has it <laughs> right and 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 again it's sort of like uh every step of the way i made a i think a really smart choice i went with a company that would was announcing that they would give me final cut uh oh I no absolutely the, yeah. the actress who i thought who was going to give me the the, the student that was going to please the studio um and uh, and 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 so and they're like yes there's some rotten luck and there's kind of some things i didn't see about people soon enough which is tough to see meaning it's there i I've, I've been fooled since it's not like uh and i know other people who've who've not seen it coming despite a lot of experience uh, my regret i think is going to college or going to college for 4 years like there's something about I can't remember what Orson Welles' education was, but it was, I'm not sure if he graduated high school. Spielberg dropped out of his freshman year. Um, uh, I'm, mar I'm married to uh, an actress, which is uh, probably a mistake, but it's, it's still <laughs> okay so far. Um, well, who, who, who's, who's very successful in the Broadway theater. And, and she dropped out of Carnegie Mellon after a year. And it's sort of like, you know what? Nobody in this town checks your diploma. Um, no, and, and it's not necessarily that I should have gone to film school, but it's sort of like uh, the ages from of, of 19 to 22 were were uh, I, I didn't need to be on a, a bucolic college campus. Um, I, I could have taken that that tuition and done something else with it. Uh, but I, I, I guess the you know the lessons besides the don't take a job for any reason other than you see a movie there that you would want to see i would and and add to that like don't write a movie for which you're not the audience for i produced a right. movie called prom for disney because i had an idea that i thought would be that they would probably love but i would never go see and i and so i should never have been the producer on it or or um uh, what other, uh, um, and uh, it's weird. Um, yeah, there's no, uh, you know, there's no Hollywood judge. There's no, um, court system or laws. Like, could you, could there's, you there's no one to appeal to. It's, it's, um, it's, it's brutal, man. There's no referee, man. There's no referee. Yeah. There's no referee in Hollywood. There's no referee. There's no one like, you know what? You did this guy wrong. This is not right. We're gonna we're gonna rule on this. It's not the way the game is played. And yeah. you know what? That's a surprise for a lot of people, as it was to you. And you and arguably you'd have been in the business for a few minutes uh, uh, when when those things were starting to happen to you. Yeah. Uh, so one day, I'm <laughs> one day I'll I'll publish the book about all this. But I need to either be bulletproof or dead. Um, <laughs> I do feel like everybody should write them their Hollywood memoirs, not to publish necessarily, 
but to go into the academy when they're gone so that if you want to know, okay, let's find out what really happened on this movie, then you can you can start reading these people's memoirs and go, oh my God, these people were screwing and that guy was drunk the whole time. Uh, I had no idea. Um, what you need to do is this. You write it and then you, 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 you on your de- the day of your death, it gets released and published yes. out to the world. Um, it's the... <laughs> Like the way that Jerry Lewis put in his will that uh, the day the clown cried can't be seen until 10 years after he's dead. Like, it's just sort of like, it's there. It's in a, it, uh, vault. It's in a vault and it will come out. I, I can't remember how many more years we have to wait for that one. It's It's been a few. Oh, my uh, God. Um, All right. So, listen, I'm going to ask you. Uh, I mean, we could be talking for another two, three hours easily. But I'm going to ask you a few questions. I ask all of my guests. Um what advice would you give a screenwriter trying to break into the business today? Uh, well, today is uh, kooky because not only uh, movies are at a low tide, and I think that could come back. Uh, yeah. it's, it's a form, and it's a uh, uh, and I think watching a movie in a theater is different than streaming it and i and i it worries me a little bit that there that there's a generation of the of, of an audience yeah. that is going to be watching movies like tv and that movies will become more like tv in its in their pacing in their but they have they have already uh, yeah but like die hard it takes 20 minutes for anything bad to happen like that's a that's a tough movie to make for streaming or for tv because it's sort of like uh we got to get to it. We got to get to it. Um, and that's a, you know, I, I'm, I'm referencing a, a very commercial piece of wonderful filmmaking. Uh, uh, so, um, so anyway, so it's, so it's a confusing time and it's hard to say definitely what's, you know, where the industry's going. Um, and uh, so what I would normally say is, or would have said <laughs> is, read a lot of scripts. Um, I think it's really good to see a lot of movies, but I think if you want to be a screenwriter, read a lot of shit. That's my wife calling, and let me just turn it off. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. No worries. Okay. This is because I said do not disturb for an hour, and then look what happened. (laughs) Let it go away. Your screen just says Zoom now, so I'm going to try to find you, but if not, we can keep going just audio. Um, no, 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 hold on a second. We'll wait, we'll wait for you to find it. It won't stop right. Oh, there it is. Okay, let me okay. try to turn off. If you want, you could text her real quick on the phone. Uh, let me just, um, uh, yeah, I appreciate it, Ted. Um, ooh, and it's snack time too. Um, Anyway, I think the reason why I suggest sometimes reading scripts instead of just watching the movies is because the act of reading lets you stop and examine and realize how something is being done, whereas movies being a temporal (laughs) um, experience, it flows right by and you're not, it's harder to study in a way i mean you can press mm-hmm. pause and say oh we're 20 minutes and then to die hard and the first gun it's it, the first gunshot just shot um 
but I would say reading scripts um, is a better way of studying them and also just figuring out what's working in scripts, what's not working, when are being when is the writer being too verbose or the characters um and um and because they are so accessible now um online especially um it's there's no excuse for not reading all of william goldman all of walter hill the cohen brothers kasdan um i'm trying to think of people who were um that are, I remember their individual scripts um, that were big in Black. Shane Black. Shane Black. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. I mean, Coffee. yeah. And just as far as finding your voice, like Shane Black is such a distinctive voice. Walter Hill is such a, like, who writes haikus. Um, right. and free play for him. Um, and so, so ultimately, you know, your as a screener, your, your strength, your superpower is being very good at what you do and probably being the smartest person in the room and hopefully not letting them, um, think you know that. Um, <laughs> All right, fair enough, fair enough. What other, uh, I, I would also give, like, I, I think the UCB is gone, the Upright Citizen Brigade, but there was, I was trying to send as many writers as I could to that, to their improv classes, because it does teach you better than anything I've experienced, the um, craft of collaboration, of listening to somebody and having to agree with them and building on that which is extraordinarily good for television writing or writing in any group, um, which is becoming more and more of a thing. Um, and it also, I think there's, it, 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 there are things I would advise of like, okay, here's how to develop your craft and your ability to do it. And then there are things I would advise of like, okay, now if you're doing it with other people, um, things I would advise, which is, Take a moment if you hear a bad idea to think about where it's coming from, because it's not just a political advice of shining somebody on, but usually the, uh, there are a lot of people who have good instincts who cannot articulate them. Um, and uh, it's your job, especially uh, um, to sort of hear that instinct and see if there's anything there. Um, and I don't think I can publicly give a, an example of this. <laughs> Fair enough. No worries. No worries. I won't, I won't make you liable, sir. Um, right. what is the lesson? What is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film industry or in life? I'm still learning it. God. Um, I'm, <laughs> it's still beating the shit out of me. Uh, I'm going to give this answer. I don't think it's necessarily the right one but it just came to mind so there's the, the goldman has the line about nobody knows anything mm -hmm. and you can depending on how you deliver that line have different truths nobody knows anything means we're all a pack of idiots and i don't think that's true he he, he knew a lot 
um, or nobody knows anything. Also, supplies like it's a complete crapshoot. Nobody knows anything is what I finally realized is I think what he's saying, which is, um, th there really isn't a hundred percent certitude that anything will actually work or is you know completely right in the sense of and the more you do it the more you kind of go into that gray zone of uncertainty when i think when you're younger you go like oh yeah this is like and you can really stick to your guns in a great and a terrible way at the same time um and so uh somebody else gave me a piece of advice which is i think along the lines of uh if you want to persuade somebody of your opinion keep 10 10% of your mind open to the possibility that you're wrong um mm. meaning, um if and and you have to do it authentically but it um but if if you if you come in with a this is absolutely absolutely it you're setting yourself up for getting your head handed to you which I, by the way, don't really think I was that guilty of, but when I got my head handed to me, uh, but it is certainly um, something I've had to be better at. Um, and um, uh, and uh, what's my ultimate wrap up of this? Um, because there are, you're gonna run into a lot of people who you realize don't know much but um and you're gonna have to <laughs> you're gonna have to appease them somehow so what in hollywood yeah. stop so get into the practice of <laughs> taking somebody's bad idea and turning it into a good one um as opposed to simply opposing right or exactly. thinking that logic or argument will win the day because it won't it will not it will not and final question, and arguably the toughest question I've asked you this entire time, three of your favorite films of all time. Um, my, uh, I'll give you a fast answer um, sure. because I have one with the caveat that uh, you can ask me again next year. But I, my, my quick answer is always Rear Window, Jaws, and Singing in the Rain. Rear Window I find to be the perfect Hollywood entertainment because it actually um, does everything movies are supposed to um there it's it's sexy it's funny it's scary it it's emotional it actually has scope because that's such a great set it is also looking through that window is the same as looking at a screen um i think it's um extraordinarily well written and plotted there's per, it's a perfect movie except for one terrible shot 10 minutes in of a helicopter over some bathing beauties which is like a dirty old man joke that just sort of there there's a difference between great movies and perfect movies ruined is not a perfect movie but it's a great movie it's not a perfect movie because of that one shitty shot um mm. sing in the rain also a great movie because there's nothing more joyful or rewatchable um it's not a perfect movie because the broadway melody dance dream of the that's the last 10 minutes is just sort of like that's eh, our third act i don't know like you can't <laughs> say what a great act structure that is then he just pitches a dance sequence in our third act and there's the end of the movie but um and jaws and jaws is a per i think is a perfect movie i don't think there's anything i would 
change about that and um uh and that's all i gotta say about that so <laughs> and that's all i got to say about that so one other thing man because you mentioned it a little bit and it's something that i think is really important for people to to hear the, the landscape has changed so dramatically from for the last five years even and you said it's the generation coming up behind us. I mean, when these great masters are gone, Spielberg, Scorsese, you know, the, these 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 legends, they're the ones holding the torch right now. And yeah, there's, you know, there's the Nolans and the Finchers and other masters out there who are doing good work. But the generation coming up, like you said, Die Hard won't go today. Die Hard's arguably one of the greatest action films ever put to celluloid. And yet this generation coming up, they're much more involved in YouTube and in and out. And, it, and I, I hear myself saying it, and it's the same thing they were saying in the 80s and 90s when MTV showed up. You know, but I think this is different, though. This is really generational uh, it, it, because they're not even, they don't even care about cinema the way you and I do. What do you, what's your thoughts on that? And for, for future generations listening to this, like screenwriters, is it TV? Is it other other forms of, of storytelling? What do you think? Well, the, it, it, it's been happening for a while. In the, if you look at the generation of directors, let's say of the 70s, that terrific generation that's Scorsese mm -hmm. and Coppola and Spielberg. And, sure. Um, but they all grew up in movie cultures. They were all born in, mostly in the 40s. Um, mm -hmm. And... Uh, film was the um, primary medium, um, and you know, the, the, I, I think there's there's like a next generation of directors who all came up through TV, and it, and everything gets a little bit, a little softer. Ron Howard, Rob Reiner, Gary Marshall, mm -hmm. um, but. What I guess uh, concerning me is sort of like I, I guess, uh, and and my generation, there are some guys who broke young and who are sort of wonderkins, uh, P.T. Anderson and Wes Anderson, notably some other people who maybe didn't uh, fulfill their early promise as much, uh, but you know. Uh, <laughs> But that's the, that's, the, that's the 90s indie vibe. That was, that was the 90s indie yeah. wave. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. You know, um, the Tarantino's, the Robert uh, Rodriguez. Yeah, Tarantino was sort of like a... Um, uh, but but the, if you think about it, post-Tarantino, how many... How much youth has there been has sort of shown up and like wow in the way that Scorsese and Spielberg um but there's more competition though when Scorsese hmm? and Spielberg were coming out there wasn't as much competition meaning for our eyes like it was cinema and like three channels of television and they the television wasn't that great back then give or take so it, it's a little harder to make noise nowadays you know I don't think there's a possibility for a a Spielberg to show up now even if he did show up, he would be drowned out. His genius would show up, I think, but it's not as easy to make that, oh my God, this is undeniable. Uh, but that coupled with, I think the talent 
there was something um the talent's gone somewhere else or or is or uh, because now because of all the other things meaning there may be video game designers who are brilliant who yep 30 years ago would have gone into movies or youtubers I, I i haven't seen anybody come in and say and be like a television wonderkin the way that some of the guys like obviously there's a lot of excellent television there's also still a lot of crap but it's a slowly evolving medium because it's um it is also ultimately a dumbed down medium and it and there aren't citizen canes of tv um there are good but but there's nobody kind of reinvents the wheel the way in well, a in a show how about chase i mean david chase with Sopranos. Sterling's a great show, but I wouldn't say um and or I, even I, or Vince or even Vince Gilligan. Again, I think it's a terrific show, but it's 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 uh I, I, there's something about the medium that I don't think that he changed the way we watch TV. Okay. In, Fair in the way that Tarantino really influenced movies oh. for a while or Spielberg did. Um and so it's uh, I'm excited about television because I think it can continue to get better. Um, it's like there's so much volume that I think that actually sometimes make it, makes it hard. There, um, God, there's so much. Um, because it's you have to make something great at 13 hours a year as opposed to two hours. That's just a, just the, the dynamic medium. that um, tends to lower the water level. Um, but I guess my concern is my concern is the audience and that it's that there won't be an audience for a certain storytelling mm-hmm. after a while. And then, then also my uh, sort of generationally, it's like, who can you name under 40? Who's, um, and I'm not going to name like some people come to mind, but there's, there's nobody under 40, right? There, there are very, sorry. There are very few people under 40 that, are feel like um are doing things the way previous generations have broken younger if that makes sense yeah absolutely and 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 i, I can't tell you exactly why other than either te- the with the advent of tech like uh wouldn't it be cooler to be uh and wouldn't you be richer doing a startup or a video game uh there, or being a youtuber is you it's yeah. less there's less barrier to entry. You can make start be making money. You can start telling your stories. You could. It's a whole other thing. Like, and I was talking to this. I was talking to somebody the other day about this. It's like in the fifth, in the fifties and sixties, everybody wanted to be a rock star. Like that was the thing. It's like the rock star was the thing. In the seventies, eighties, especially the nineties, when when Quentin showed up, everybody wanted to be a movie director because he made it was a he was the first rock and roll kind of director. And now it's really everybody wants to, uh, the new generation. They want to be content creators. They want to be influencers. They want to be social right. media. They want to tell stories in those mediums. And I've been watching some of these like big, big YouTubers and big social media. And I'm like, I see what they're doing and I see how they're doing it. And boy, are they getting rich, <laughs> like obscenely rich. It's insane. So it's, it's generationally, I see my kids too growing up. Like I try to get them to sit down and watch a movie. Like we we were gonna we actually my wife and I over Christmas because Die Hard is the greatest Christmas movie of all time sat down and started watching Die Hard and they they couldn't they couldn't make it past those first twenty minutes we're like God Jesus 
I don't know. Uh, I don't want to depress. I don't want to end on a depressing note. <laughs> yeah, but but I because I, it begins to remind me of those documentaries about the golden age of Hollywood that I grew up watching, like in the seventies, eighties, where there's like oh, old yeah. Douglas Fairbanks Jr. saying the filmmakers today are just about smut and <laughs> there's no romance and sort of like I, and I don't want to turn into like the that guy <laughs> that guy oh you kids get off my lawn uh but to some degree it's 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 sad because like um it's I, different I, because i i guess i don't uh, i mean i don't watch youtube influencers so i don't know even what the form is and uh and if it's um it's a different world and man. whether i'm just it's impossible for me to appreciate because i'm too old or because it just sucks. Um, and there's I don't that. Know there, um, there, it, it, there's that. There's both. There's both in everything. And not that I'm saying I'm not even. I'm, and please, everyone listening, I'm not comparing YouTube, you know, YouTubers to Scorsese. That's not a thing. They're two different mediums. But on a financial standpoint, being a YouTuber that has much more financial success in many ways, easier right. for more people to get into than being a screenwriter is tougher. But you got to love what you're doing. And I, I just hope that there's an audience, like you were saying, I hope there's an audience for the kind of films that we grew up with. I hope some I mean, movies some started as one reelers or as Penny Arc, uh, you know, and yeah, and, yeah. and they were terrible. Uh, you know, <laughs> as for all we can say, like, uh, yes, there was a, there was a very slow learning curve on how to make movies. And it took a while. And there have been uh, and, and, and maybe YouTube is the beginning of a great, great new medium. Uh, but it's still in um, a arcade state. disposable mode. Yeah, absolutely. Ted, brother, I listen, man, I, I appreciate you coming on the show so much, man. I knew this was going to be a hell of a conversation and you did not disappoint, my friend. Well, I, I appreciate that. Hopefully I didn't ruin my career by <laughs> too many names, but and just leaving it to your imagination. I'm trying to think if there's any last thing I would uh, yeah, what say. Is, and, and, you are out there thing. listening and you want to be a screenwriter please like i'm we 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 need you like i i yes. want to be as encouraging possible like uh, the the culture needs it and i an audience the audience needs it and uh i'm we're all begging for better film and television and please um we want you to work your ass off uh, to bring great stuff uh um it would it would be terrible if the if the medium died. Yeah, and I don't think I don't think it will. I think we'll have a form of it in one way, shape, or form moving forward. But it will be different than what we grew up with. There's no it, 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 like it was for D Douglas Fairbanks. <laughs> you right. know, he would have looked at a music video and said, "What what what smut?" You know, but look <laughs> at look at the amazing crop of filmmakers that came out of the '90s music video, and you know, Ridley for God's sake, Tony came out of commercials and music videos. It's insane. But Ted, brother, I appreciate you coming on, man. And thank you again for all, all thank the Thank you for, the for having me. It was a, a, a joy and a pleasure. I want to thank Ted so much for coming on the show and being so raw and honest about his experiences in the film industry. Thank you so, so much, Ted. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, including how to watch his remarkable episode of the Dialogue series, head over to the show notes at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash 275. Thank you so much for listening, guys. As always, keep on writing, no matter what. I'll talk to you soon. 
Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv. 